Hi there, come up on the porch. We're just sitting here watching it rain and talking about Louisiana. Hi, there's Kenny. And I'm Steve Payne. And this is the Louisiana Anthology Podcast, episode 548, for November 18, 2023. Welcome back. Uh, today we've got a, a, a a couple of folks that we're interviewing, Allison Alsop and Jessica Kinson, and uh, they head up the uh, New Orleans Writers Workshop, which is, I suppose, available to anybody that wants to, uh, you know, learn how to uh, to uh, write creatively. Um, there's a joining forces with an ever-growing number of community partners that embrace the venture. Only New Orleans can now, which is a uh, the New Orleans Writers Workshop, uh, which is we have one day, two day, four week, and nine week classes at the New Orleans, Orleans Museum of Art, New Orleans Center for Creative Art, Studio in the Woods, and other venues. And I think you can also, um, I think they do some Zoom stuff as well. So uh, if you're interested in uh, writing, you might want to reach out to them. And uh, definitely you want to listen to us as we chat with them in a few minutes. But first, this week in Louisiana history. So this week in Louisiana history, on November 11th, 1984, the Louisiana World Expo closes with a financial loss. And I think it was a pretty serious loss, wasn't it? Yeah, and I, I remember I was actually living here then, and I went way too crowded and hot. And, you know, um, uh, it was just kind of miserable uh, to be uh, walking around under the sun and kind of shade or anything. Um, and also, I think today, you know, the day of the uh, World Air had kind of gone. We had, you know, Disney World. You've got all the kick flags. You've just got all this stuff all over the country. So World's Fair isn't quite what it once was. I don't know if they've had one since. It's sort of like... Um People are satiated with that kind of stuff, you know, with all the amusements and this kind of thing. And you figure now, too, all the competition is, is probably even keener than it was because that's, well, that's almost 40 years ago now, you know? Well, and the problem with it is, uh, uh, let's say I want to set up um, Disney World. So I buy the land and I build all this stuff and people ride on it for the next four or five decades. And uh, that's how I make my money, right? You know, pay off all of the building. But, you know, a World's Fair, those are always just one year. And it makes it really hard to make your money back. They um, they had that big one in uh, Atlanta uh, years and years ago. And what, what they did get some benefit out of that, I don't know what other benefits were, but one of the benefits was that it really it forced Atlanta to create, was it the World's Fair over there or the Olympics? I think it was the World's Fair, but it, it forced the, I want to say it forced the creation of the MARTA, that Metro Atlanta Rapid Transit Authority. Oh, right, right. When they brought in the, the, the subway. And see, that was a that was a feat in a southern, a major southern metropolitan area, a major southern city. Uh, it might have been. been south, and they, they had to have a subway system or train system, I should say, to, to get around, you know. And that may have been the Olympics. Didn't they have the bombing with that part of that? 
Oh, you're you're breaking up kind of bad here. Uh, hold on. <clears throat> All right, am I sounding any better yet? Yeah, yeah, now you're fine. Ah, so there was that uh, bombing, I think it was when they had the Olympics. It may, it may have been. May have been. Remember the, the security Olympic guards? Park. The security guards spotted the bag that had been left, and then uh, because they couldn't figure out who actually had left the bomb, they they decided to go after him. Uh, do you remember that at all? Yeah, didn't they? They wound up. Yeah, that guy had nothing to do with it, and they ended up. Oh, of course it. not. No, they were just uh, okay. He, he, you know, standing you near look the like bomb. A likely suspect. It sounds like yeah, a, right. Like an old thirties, like you know crime film, you know, and they'd say, let's throw out the dragnet, you know, and they'd go throw out the dragnet. And, well, know, and as uh, as they say in tests of like a roundup, the usual suspects. So, you know, you always look for, a, you know, the, the wannabe hero who actually did the deed, but it turned out that they were wrong. Imagine that. Well, anyway, um, now on to this week in New Orleans history, shortly before 6 o'clock p.m., on November 18th. 1926, the New Orleans commuter uh, train was struck and overturned at the Southport crossing by a string of boxcars um, back toward the river on a Louisiana railway and navigation company switch track. When two dozen passengers were injured, only two of them were taken to the hospital. So, um, sounds like a big wreck, but not that many fatalities probably because yeah. they weren't going that fast you know could have been a um, lot worse oh yeah 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 now for this week in louisiana so this week in louisiana we highlight the fourth annual human horse <laughs> wow human horse race <laughs> That's funny, right? that takes place on november the 23rd of 2023 from 11 to 3 p.m at easton park in mid-city entry is free uh, the event will uh, feature live music and food and beverages, which are also available. You can purchase betting tokens to place donation bets on the horse you think will win the following round. Winners of the races receive prizes, and bettors get an entry for a chance to win a mega prize. All donations benefit local animal and wildlife rescue initiatives. The 2023 beneficiary will be Greeno Equine Sanctuary, which has a website. It's in LeBlanc, Louisiana. And for the main event, the human horse races, there's a website for this also. So do check yeah. this out. And there'll be a link in the show notes. Have you ever been to this? No, I never it's even heard of wild, it. Actually. Yeah, it looks fun. It's a postcard from Louisiana. I listened to the TBC Brass Band and Hazizzle at the Satchmo Fest in the Old Mint in New Orleans. <laughs> Give it up for Mr. Robert Smith, ladies and gentlemen. 
Thanks for having us. Well, thank you Good so much for coming on. And I uh, have been following your work. <clears throat> running a, a writer's workshop. Would you like to tell our people a little bit about it and how they can get involved if they're interested? Sure. Jessica, do you want to lead the charge on this one? Oh, sure. I'd be happy to. Okay. So <laughs> we met as teachers at Loyola University. We taught in the Loyola Writing Institute years and years ago. And then we branched out in 2017 to form the New Orleans Writers Workshop. Um, back then, we were an LLC. And then during the pandemic, we spent some of our idle time becoming a 501c3. Oh. So now we're a full-fledged nonprofit. And we offer classes year-round, both virtually and in person, uh, all around the city of New Orleans. We have offered classes uh, on the North Shore. I'm originally from Mississippi, so we hope to eventually branch out into Mississippi as well. Um, classes are a great writing yeah. tradition. Uh, so, what part of Mississippi were you from? Well, I also got both that family in Jackson. I grew up in Jackson, born there. My family's still there, and uh, Allison can speak to her connection to Mississippi. Yeah, my my father uh, was born and grew up in Mississippi, and I was born in Mississippi, but I was raised in the San Francisco Bay Area. Oh. I've lived in New Orleans for about 23 years, but I'm originally cool. from the Bay Area. Yeah, my people are from Covington County with Collins, which is about mm -hmm. 
two-thirds of the way on Highway 49 from Jackson to uh, oh, uh, Hattiesburg. Yeah, we're, we're about 20 yeah. miles out of Hattiesburg. Maybe 30. Anyway, um, always nice to meet another expat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've been in New Orleans for 19 years now, so almost, well, actually longer than I lived there. So right, right. Kind of running the I-55 back and forth a lot. And so, uh, yeah, it's not that far. So, uh, do y'all have like a headquarters or do y'all just move like from one place to another, uh, finding spots to have your seminars? Yeah, you pretty much nailed it there, Bruce. Uh, I would say that one of the biggest challenges for us is where we are going to have space. And we've tried to really vary that up. Sometimes it's been uptown, um, over in the Bywater. We've often, um, or I should say that we have from time to time run classes even at the New Orleans Museum of Art or the Ogden Museum. Um, but getting that space has been one of our challenges. We do not have a physical location, so our location changes based on the workshop. Well, but that's also an advantage in that um, you can go where the students are. They don't, you know, people, they might come out from Kenner a time or two, but I don't know that they'd make it to every, but if you have a thing in Kenner and it's, Kenner authors, then um, it makes it easier for them to get out, you know, get to the the, uh, the seminars. Oh, with that, yeah, we have, we have uh, students that come from, uh, you know, a lot of our classes, for instance, if we have ongoing classes, and I should say this, our classes are of varying lengths. So, for instance, this Saturday, I'm teaching a three-hour workshop. It's a one-off. Sometimes we have classes that are once a week for four weeks or six right. weeks or nine weeks is probably the longest that we go. And occasionally we do uh, courses that are also online. So we do some that are via Zoom. Um, but we have students who, because of the schedule, they come in from Baton Rouge. I've had students come as far as, as Lafayette um, or, or drive in from oh. Mississippi. People that want to learn, they, they will go to a big degree. And, you know, we think of writing as a solitary kind of thing, but humans are social animals, and I think we do better when we can find our tribe, you know, even if we're not Like a lot of times when Stephen and I are working on the project late at night, you know, he's at his house, I'm at mine, but uh, we're texting back and forth while we work on stuff. So that gives you the social organization that people need to uh, and throwing throwing ideas at each other you know yeah. um, um I'm, I'm curious how did both of you decide that you uh not only were writers but that you wanted to teach writing because I, I like to do that with our guests you know what what kind of sparked your interest in writing at the very beginning yes what's your origin story <laughs> yeah i'll let you go first <laughs> okay um so i've been writing my whole life um, I don't come from a family of writers and readers, but I come from a family of storytellers, which you might be familiar with. Uh, and I um, became a, a student high school columnist in the statewide newspaper, the Clarion Ledger, when I was 15, and that kind of started the road. I worked as a journalist around Jackson uh, for a civil rights newspaper and for the Clarion Ledger all throughout high school, and I was secretly writing creative work also, and then... I came to New Orleans to go to Loyola to study writing, um, and I always stuck with journalism because I thought, okay, I have to have a job of some kind. You know, I want to write, but I got to have a job. So I started out in journalism, and then Katrina hit my sophomore year of college, so I shifted to creative writing fully because the journalism department shifted, and that was a great decision for me. I studied with John Biganay, 
I got to connect with lots of wonderful writers in New Orleans. We ran a reading series at the Collins Hotel here in New Orleans in college. And then that really went from there. And so um, and I'm after not, college, yeah. I'm not sure if the writing was on the wall quite yet in 2005, but uh, journalism is definitely a dying uh, profession, uh, especially print journalism. It's just hard to get people to buy uh, print material anymore. Um, so, <laughs> but they always need people to teach writing, right? Well, it served me well because I'm deadline oriented mm-hmm. and I, I can view writing as work rather than, you know, in addition to being my soul's purpose, right? Like some students get really caught up in that. And so when I went for my MFA in creative writing, I followed Cheryl St. Germain, famous oh. poet from Louisiana up to Pittsburgh and studied with her for a few years. Here's one um, of our friends. Uh, with, yeah. With, uh, interviewed her, I don't know, how long ago, Stephen? Five or six years? I was going to say, yeah. yeah, at least. I was I was thinking maybe seven or eight, but I, I wouldn't swear to that. But, yeah, it's been a oh, while. <laughs> yeah, yeah, John Bigamy introduced me to her. I think they were old school friends uh, who grew up in New Orleans. And, um, you know, I, it served me well, that journalism background, studying fiction in my MFA. And I thought I wanted to be a professor, but my fellowship was teaching in the county jail there in Pittsburgh. And that really launched me into the work I do now, which is in social services, social justice, philanthropy, and teaching creative writing in alternative spaces. I really thought I wanted to be a professor, but I realized in that fellowship, no, I want to, I want to talk about writing and stories like my family did. You know, I want to be in a space where we can talk about real stuff and not necessarily heady stuff. It's, it's interesting so. how those experiences are kind of revelatory, right, in the mm-hmm. sense that they do kind of give you revelation or insight or whatever about what you should do as opposed to what you've been doing or whatever. Yeah. And then I came home and worked at uh, Project Lazarus and the Marini for nine and a half years. So it really made a huge mark on my life. And, um, and yeah, what, I still love it to today. And, and what is that project you just mentioned? Uh, it's a little unclear. What did you say it was? It's called Project Lazarus. Oh. It is a housing facility for people living with HIV. Uh, and so what I did there, again, writing, you know, studying writing can get you anywhere. I wrote federal grants and private foundation grants and then taught creative writing to the individuals who live there and folks from other surrounding facilities who are also living with HIV. So every week we had a creative writing session together at least once yeah. for almost 10 years. And I think they're still doing it. I've moved on in the last few years, but yeah. Yeah, so we talked to Cheryl in June of 2015. So, Stephen, we're spot on. Eight years almost to the day. Um, wow. I don't realize how quickly time passes. Uh, so how about you, Allison? Give us your origin story. Uh, well, I, as usual, whenever I follow Jessica, I always feel a lot more disrespectful and, or, or just kind of like a grifter in some way, a little underhanded. Because Jessica has such a beautiful indecency about her, my story, <laughs> story is not quite—it's not so quite altruistic. I'll put it that way. Um, I think that growing up, I never knew that I wanted to be a writer. I came from a family of readers, that was for sure. Um, but I think it was more like I got to the end of college and I thought, "Oh Lord, the real world is waiting out there." That doesn't sound so great. And uh, coming up with an idea at the last moment. <laughs> 
I thought writing, sure, that sounds interesting. People have been so passionate about it and, you know, they kill themselves over it. That sounds interesting. So I applied <laughs> and kind of finagled my way into an MFA program. It wasn't entirely honest. I applied to hmm. a very akin program and then transferred within that department once uh, I'd had access to those creative writing classes, snuck my way in, managed to get an MFA. What they school know. was that at? Say that again, Stephen. What, what school was that at? I somehow managed to get a degree from Emerson, uh, which is actually a fairly reputable MFA. Yeah, Emerson's good. Thank you. Thank you for letting me slide in. <laughs> There's a feeling in the South, especially the rural South, that uh, writing is a kind of scam because uh, it does not usually involve sweat. Uh, you can't lose a limb. Um, you know, a real job is one that, you know, you know, you know they got a real job when they've got, you know, missing parts of their bodies and you know, sitting around typing on a typewriter. Well, and you can't you can't see any result, any tangible results either, other than words on a page or words on a screen, right? There's no. Mm -hmm. It's almost mm -hmm. got to use a philosophical term. It's got no utility, at least for a lot of people. You know, it's got no use. Oh, I think I'd have to least, argue again, no against that. Kind of use. <laughs> well, we're talking about the kind. But of... I mean, no, that's what a lot of those people think. Though they they are thinking yeah. that. Yeah. He's talking about the kind of people who reject the idea of reading. My good lady in, uh, you know, uh, Florida a week or so back who, uh, got a poem kicked off, uh, you know, their, her school's curriculum, the, the one written by the youngest, uh, black woman, uh, poet who ever presented the, uh, you know, inauguration. Uh, this woman had all kinds <clears throat> of vague stuff, but then turned out she's posting the protocols of the older Zion. Facebook. And, oh, well, I don't really know English that well, and I don't really read. I just see a word, and I post it. And uh, yeah, that kind of person definitely is alienated from the idea of writing and reading. You know, why would you waste money on books? You know, why do you want to well, go to? And I say that you're pretty much alienated from the idea of thinking, creating, yeah. imagining, exactly. healing. Uh, <laughs> I think that writing is so essential to who we are as human beings and uh, and so for me you know fortunately this this wild guess on my part as a much younger person was not in fact a wild no. notion it was not a passing fancy and it stuck and i would say that just about almost every major idea in terms of human civilization has in one point or another found an outlet in writing that's it, right. It has to if it's going it's to. Terrible fun. <laughs> Otherwise, yeah. people will die off, and the text will be forgotten, and or the uh, the idea will be forgotten. It has to be preserved. <clears> well, also today, preserved. I think writing is more important than ever. You know, for a while, I think people thought that it was going to be just visual, and of course, visual elements are incredibly important. But in an age of email and social media. Um, blog posts and so forth, writing has become so critical yet again, whether or not mm -hmm. it's fiction or not, the ability to, to craft your thought, your idea, present an idea is, I think, more critical now than ever. Yeah, absolutely. And, and especially in an articulate and engaging way, and even depending on the context in a logical way, too. Well, in a persuasive way, right? Yep, I'm really yep, grateful yep. for this conversation because 
I did grow up in a family that wasn't really into reading and wanted me to get a job that paid me. I mean, that was their goal in life to give me more than they had. Right. Right. So the life of an artist was great because they, they like music and art in general, but the idea of writing wasn't so tangible for them. Um, And as I've grown and grown with them, I think they've really changed on that. And I've learned so much about, the utility of writing, you know, starting with that jail experience, right? That's a place where letters really matter. You have to write a letter to any person you want to do anything for you ever, right? And it has to be persuasive. It has to be clear, you know, and you can't use certain words, right? What a puzzle, you know? And also those folks were really working to uh, assert their humanity in a place that was really trying to take it away. And that happened again at Lazarus and that every day in my work at, I now work for the Foundation for Louisiana. Um, every day we're writing grants, writing narratives, like Allison was saying, trying to communicate what we're doing and why we're doing it and why it matters. Right. Yep. And so writing is essential to everything. Stephen and I just got our first two grants. We, I got a little money from an endowed professorship and we used the money to hire a uh, grant writer, which was the best money we've ever spent, because it's not something Stephen and I would ever, ever do. Like, it's just too much, and we take a look at it. But, you know, we'd meet with Debbie on Wednesday afternoons, and uh, she would say, okay, we got this far in our to-do list. And eventually, we had uh, you know, minutes. Well, we've got minutes. Uh, we've got uh, bylaws. We've got a business plan. Mid- mid- statement we've got all kinds of things i mean and once we got all that in place we were able to become a uh, a, a non-profit um yes yeah, so uh, we're not for profit like y'all now yeah. um congratulations but then we also just um just i don't know this was about two months no about a month and a half ago i guess anyhow we got bruce mentioned a couple of grants well one of our grants we got is a fairly prestigious leh grant Oh, uh, we're first wonderful. Yeah, we got this thing for, for five grand and we're going for another one. And we'll well it'll actually I guess be announced tonight. I mean we announced it last night as far as our or yesterday afternoon last night, taping the intro and outro for our show that yeah, we're, you know yeah, for tonight. <laughs> but uh, um, but yeah, I mean this is a this is a deal, you know, and, and we're as I said, we're going for another one and our grant writer and her assistant have both have found us, I think, fifty five other grants. Uh, some of which won't you know, become yeah they won't they won't become effective for us until August I think or something where we can even start applying. But the point mm-hmm. is again it, it, that whole process that we undertook has now opened us up to all kinds of opportunities that we did not have and we've been doing this eleven years I mean you yeah. know over a decade now and right we've been what you call self funded uh, <laughs> <clears throat> if something needed paying for we just uh, paid for it but uh, now we've actually got some. Uh, you know, recognition as well as the uh, money, which is nice. But you can't get any of that until you get all of that other stuff done so you become a nonprofit. And see, I, I know what y'all have gone through. <laughs> um, yeah, I should say uh, the kind of classes that we do, just to clarify, we do, you know, our, uh, the kind of classes and workshops that we offer are creative writing. Right. So, you know, rather than persuasive or argumentative, they're nonfiction there's a lot of fiction that we do as well, novel writing, short stories, sometimes on very particular elements of craft. Oh. Uh, for instance, 
you know, scene writing or dialogue. Um, and then we also do classes on poetry, and Jessica teaches a great one about establishing the writing life and process. So they run the gamut of that um, creative writing, but they're they're for all types of creative writers. And how how about adults only? Like adults only. Like, uh, like writing play scripts or even, and this is a big deal. I mean, I've got friends actually that do that in the art world, but they double as writing comic scripts. Do y'all do any of that kind of thing too, or? Uh, not yet, although we do have an interest in potentially branching out. I think we did one playwriting class, um, but for the most part, our writers are interested in kind of memoir, personal essay, short stories, novels, for the most part. But we're definitely interested in, in branching out. I should say another thing that we do, both Jessica and I, is we work as one-on-one developmental editors. So in other words, if people have projects, they can come and bring them to us. And it's very wow. different than what people would think of as an editor, like say, copy editing or line editing. What we do is much more substantial feedback in terms of structure, characterization, theme, oh. pacing, all sorts of things. Right. One of the teacher's side hustle at Tech, English teachers, in the technical writing field where um, we have a lot of people writing theses and dissertations and a lot of them are, uh, you know, grew up with some other language than English as their first language. So uh, they'll bring it to one of my colleagues. I never had the energy for it. Uh, and they'll go through it kind of line by line. And probably less uh, of what you're talking about and more of just, uh, you know, this sentence needs to be smoothed out some. Stuff like oh, that. far more than that. And frankly, I have to yeah, say I know, I'm very grateful that, that, that the kind of feedback that I give, if anyone had ever told me when I was 20-something years old that I would even make $5 going to a coffee shop <laughs> and helping somebody make a better short story, I would have said, you're kidding, that's, that's a life of fantasy. But in fact, um, this is something that we do fairly often now. I have multiple clients, some of which are here in New Orleans, some of which are in other places in the United States. They send me chapters. I've had the great fortune of working with some uh, writers from page one all the way through the end of their book, including, wow. I was going to give a shout out to local uh, writer and author, Elisa Speranza, who was one of my first clients. She produced her own book last year called The Italian Prisoner. It's done very well. It's set here in, in New Orleans. Um, so this has just been such a joy. In addition to our own writing, I think Jessica and I probably feel the same way, that it is just as rewarding helping somebody else to create their vision. We are a collaborator. Um, with uh, New Orleans being the crossroads, is, uh, do you have any students who write in other languages like um, Spanish or French or any of the others that come in? I don't currently. I mean, not not in our classes, at least. That's what I, mean. I do. We do have. I have had students who's uh, who are you know multilingual, um, but you know, of course, I'm limited. <laughs> I'm just reading their work in English. Um, but right, right. Yeah, I mean, I think C. W. Cannon, one of our, our our instructors who teaches creative nonfiction often, who's born and raised <laughs> in New Orleans. Austin uh, works with manuscripts that have some French mixed in um, because he's dealing like with Chopin. history. Hmm? Like Kate Chopin's uh, uh, 
Mm-hmm. Stories. You know, they just drop a little French in for flavor, you know. Um, and you yeah. Yeah, I've had I've had that uh, with Spanish or uh, with French, but mm-hmm. in order to teach somebody writing in an entirely different language, the, the level of mastery would be off the charts. Yeah, that's probably not something. I mean, I have a pretty high degree of French, but that's probably something that would, would be have to wait for a different lifetime for me. <laughs> Our most recent post is in Franklish, which is half French, half English. Oh, yeah, I'm fluent in Franklin. (laughs) (laughs) The title is uh, Fuck You, Evangeline, because she doesn't think Evangeline is very fitting for a modern feminist audience. You can make the argument that she is, but I totally get where she's coming from, and I love her perspective. But also, just the way she runs back and forth from the French to the English throughout the poem, I, I was really impressed. We have multiple students who are writing in English as a second language. I just uh, took on an additional client. She's originally from Sweden. Uh, so I have just the utmost respect, but we, we do have those students. And and I have to say is I, I'm always fascinated with the way that they write English. There's always going to be a slight variation, but I find that their English is just as interesting, if not more, than our original one. <laughs> yeah, we have things, ex, you know, it used to be in the British Empire students at Tech They're from India or uh, Nepal and uh, they'll talk about a timepiece instead of a watch and stuff like that. Just little Britishisms, I guess, more than anything, uh, because of their version of English they grew up with. Um, yeah. Yeah. But, well it's about getting the details right. <laughs> right, right. No matter who's speaking, right? Yeah. I I like the idea of uh, Louisiana is a multilingual state. You know, at one point we were, we were thoroughly, especially in the I-10 corridor, that whole, you know, swath. And we kind of sold our birthright. You know, it's, uh, and it was probably from good motives, like in the 30s, Huey Long's trying to uh, educate all the kids, not just the kids of the elites and giving away these free textbooks. But guess what? Every one of those textbooks is all in English, and all these kids went to school and were punished for speaking their French, where their illiterate parents and grandparents never ran into that. Now, we're trying to build it after it's already been lost. I don't know how you do that. Cause how do you well, make it I'll just chime in on this one, because part of what I, I do believe strongly in French, French was actually my undergrad. And um, I'm the president of an organization here in town that is a francophone organization called L'Union Française. It's the oldest francophone organization in Louisiana. And so the preservation of French is something that I feel very strongly about. And I do feel as though we are making significant strides as a city and a state as recognizing French as part of the state's cultural legacy. So schools that are popping up, and these schools are very popular. They always have students, waiting lists, and so forth. Parents who, because they're no, children, they speak French, are learning to speak French so that their kids can't get away with stuff. And, uh, <laughs> and, and I just think that it's really making a comeback. There's a guy we talked to a while back, Marie. Is that his last name? Um, he's so big into trying to bring French back in, in uh, the New Orleans area. Robert. Robert de Marie, I think it's his name. Um, I don't know him personally, but all this is that there are multiple French conversations that happen weekly, even in New Orleans. If you wanted to, you could 
take as an adult language classes at multiple places, and you could go to coffee shops and speak with others. So these meetup groups exist. I go to one each week on Tuesdays. Well, that's how you would rebuild it by making it. I would like I would like to see classes comparable to that in Spanish, since we were a Spanish oh, colony. We have them also. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Exists too. <clears throat> I'll just say this. If you want to learn a language now, there is no excuse. <laughs> These classes are affordable and accessible. And not only can you go to class, but you can also go and meet others who are interested um, around the city and attempt to speak that language with them. Probably need to do that. I've been studying French with the Duolingo app. And it's only of use, limited usefulness. You know, I think you really need to yeah, language is meant to be used. Uh, oui, mon ami, il faut pratiquer avec des autres. <laughs> that's right. Um, what's the French for amen? Probably amen. Um, <laughs> so tell us a little bit about, like, if you're uh, starting a new class, uh, what is it you, like, are trying, what are the steps the, the neophyte writers are going to go through to become better writers? Allison, how about, I don't know. Yeah, take the lead on it. I think oh, our teachers have varied approaches, you know. Oh, but I think yours is very all interesting. Of the classes, like y'all are, uh, teach probably some of them and then have other people teach? No, I'm sorry. I need, yeah, I should clarify. We have teachers, um, you know, kind of a stable of four or five teachers that teach every, every go around. And then we have visiting teachers constantly. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So um, we're always kind of trying to think outside of the box and we're always trying to listen to our students and see who they want to learn from and what they want to learn and how they want to learn it. Right. Um, so, yeah. But I think Allison has a, a wonderful approach to fiction, particularly in the different levels and how she builds on her classes. So I just wanted to hear from you. I'd say that we have a, a lot of uh, variety. Again, we give our teachers leeway. So some of the classes mm -hmm. that um, our writers sign up for, they're looking for what we call a generative class. And mm -hmm. a generative class is like it sounds. You're going to come in and you're going to generate based on custom writing exercises. Usually they are attempting to hone in on a few different points of craft, right? But learn something specific. That might be dialogue. That might be pacing. That might be building character. That might be about phrasing, imagery. Um, working in more tactile and sensory uh, material into the writing. But those are generative classes. And then we also have classes that are more craft-based, where students are really engaging in discussion, using already published examples to be able to build up a craft. And then we have classes, I should say, that often combine these. So sometimes people are writing new work, but then they also get to discuss a point. For instance, the three hours that I'll be doing this week about scene writing. That's going to be a little bit of craft discussion, some examples, but the students are also going to be able to generate and walk away with two new scenes. Finally, we have classes that are a little bit longer where students actually submit their work. And this is a proper and true workshop in that case where the students pass out the work to the teachers, the other students, and the students are all learning, you know, applying lessons to their own writing, but really engaging with other people's work as, as the source of those lessons and the material to be discussed. So you're talking about what works, what we might have questions. Yeah out areas for improvement. So all of these are possibilities. 
That's why we always try to post on our website a description of the kind of class that a student could expect. Yeah, I don't really do creative writing, but I do teach one narrative to my uh, 101 introduction composition. One of the things we read is the chapter uh, Salvation by Langston Hughes. It's okay. 15 paragraphs, and we go one, you know, each paragraph. Okay, this is what he's doing here. He's laying down tracks, setting up the, uh, the story in this next paragraph. He is too, and that's very generic, like, like touch sketch, and then he gets into the part of it, and like 85% of the whole thing is uh, focused on this five or ten minutes at the end of the last service where he's being pressured to walk up the aisle. And then once that was done, he kind of got out pretty quickly. And I used that to say, okay, kind of focus on the most interesting part. Don't try to tell me everything you did in your whole vacation. It comes out awful. So you got to find the good thing. Yeah, I would say that one thing um, that I have really felt that has marked, for instance, my education in terms of, of writing education um, and what, where I come from as a writing teacher now, a facilitator and, and also just, you know, kind of a writing coach one-on-one is this real importance of learning to read like a writer. Yeah. So often in school, we are taught to read for content, to mm. be able to regurgitate and summarize ideas. We are not really taught uh, so very much about how to construct and see the function of what that writing is. I, the, the kind of analogy that I give is, for instance, if you have somebody who is in the fashion industry or a seamstress, a tailor, when they see a beautiful garment, they're like, take it off, turn it inside out, show me the seam work, how it's pieced together, and then I'll tell you how great this piece really is, right? That's what they want to know. And that is its own particular form of reading education, is to be able to read like a writer. What were the specific choices that the writer made, and why might they have made them, and to what effect? If we can learn these things through examples from others, then we stand a shot at really improving uh, our own writing and being able to apply them, because that's what writing is. Right. Sometimes people think, oh, it's just the mysterious muse. Well, that might be part of it. Sure. It might be a gift <laughs> from the universe. Sure. It might be talent. Sure. It's discipline. Sure. It's all of these things together. But really, at the end of the day, writing is a series of choices. And the more right. informed you are about those choices, the better you can control the outcome of the effect of your writing on your audience. Right. Yeah. That's very interesting. And, you know, the first thing I do when I get to an interesting website is do the view source, see, okay, how are they doing this? Because I'm the web guy for the, so I see what you're saying. Okay, you're not reading the story just for what happened to Miss Daisy's boyfriend. You're reading for, okay, how is this crafted in such a way? Like this wee chorus that, um, what's that? that? Was that Faulkner? Um, or Rose for Emily? Um, oh, yeah. And, yeah. And, uh, That's a great story. Yeah, I used, to, I, used to, I used to teach at UNO. I taught in the English department there for seven years, and I, and I would <laughs> teach that story. Um, and it is, in my opinion, still quite a masterful and, for its day, quite experimentally structured story. Yes, yes. It's, I hadn't thought about it until just now after you said that. But, yeah, it is so like you float through time. Yep. Um, <laughs> this is one of the very few uh, modern works with the – Greek 
chorus, you know, the, the we, we did this, we did that. Who, who is we? <laughs> uh, we, we don't have any first-person plural narratives. So that's one thing that makes it really interesting to me is uh, these rather difficult choices that he made. But so Mississippi, right? Even Louisiana, you've got this small town. Everybody's keeping up with each other's business. But on the other hand, there's a lot that goes on behind closed doors that we don't know about. You can't tell a lady she smelled. <laughs> no, uh, but I think you're pointing out something that's really, for instance, uh, something that we would probably discuss in, in, in multiple classes. What you're talking about is the we versus an I versus a no. third person narrator. That's one of the first and fundamental choices that a writer needs to make whenever they create a story is what's going to be the point of view or the consciousness through no. which that story is going to be told. Think of the shift from Tom Sawyer to Huck Finn. Tom Sawyer is this omniscient third person, very traditional. And then he, Huck Finn, it's all told from the perspective of Huck Finn, which is great. He's got this great voice, but also uh, quite reliable as a narrator. You know, it was a big step forward in Twain's crowd. Mm-hmm. Jessica, is there anything that you want to... Uh... I want to be conscious of the fact that Jessica has a regular, oh. uh, very respectful day job. Okay. <laughs> Is there anything you wanted to talk about, like in terms of your own writing and, and things that you're working on now? Stephen, why don't you take that since you're our creative person? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I was, I've been curious all along about because this is something Bruce and I are about to start doing, possibly with this next grant is taking our show on the road. And I'm curious if y'all have talked about taking your show on the road. That is to say, not just teaching what you teach in New Orleans or the New Orleans area, but actually traveling around Louisiana and maybe the Gulf Coast. Or even in your case, just traveling along the I-10 corridor, say from New Orleans over to Lake Charles. Have y'all thought about doing that at all and kind of, you know, making your, your, your work more available to, to, to more people? Uh, not just, you know, like in a Zoom conference like we're doing now, but physically, you know, building the, I mean, I, I'm a big believer like Bruce in the community of writers, just like the community of learners. So have y'all thought about going elsewhere and trying to, you know, maybe help other writers start a community of writers somewhere else? And, and you would do it through the, through the medium of the teaching, in other words. Have y'all thought about that or? Yes. So <laughs> maybe I'll start and you can add else. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the, the pandemic really helped us sort of rethink our, our reach because we moved all of our classes online and right. we were, were able to connect to, you know, Allison has a network in California. She has a network from schools. So did I from Pittsburgh and New York City. I taught at Kenyon College uh, in 2018. Those students are now taking my classes virtually. Um, you know, we always talked about bringing them to New Orleans for a weekend or something because we had such a, like you said, we built such a deep community in that week at Kenyon College, and now they're just taking my classes virtually. So we've connected with people all over the country through the virtual classes. Um, we did, you know, several years ago, we, we ran a series of classes at the Southern Hotel on the North Shore, and we had North Shore writers teaching those classes. And that was a great experience. So we connected with people we might not have otherwise. And now they drive over here. <laughs> you know, uh, we do have, I have several students who drive from Mississippi, the Mississippi Gulf Coast, especially uh, from Baton Rouge, from Lafayette. Um, you know, they're coming because they want to be in these classes. 
Um, I think Allison and I also uh, went to the Mississippi Book Festival last year. We're going to do it again this year. Um, and to go to that. <laughs> it was a great experience for me. I loved it. We met so many people who are passionate about their writing and interested in learning more. Um, and I think some of them have driven to New Orleans. Some of them have connected with us virtually. But we would love to have some classes in Jackson, maybe at Lemuria. We've looked on the Gulf Coast. Um, we are interested. I think Allison's looking at um, having a retreat, you know, uh, in Massachusetts. I've taught in <laughs> Pittsburgh. Uh, when I've gone there and the teachers I studied with there have taught for us when they've come to New Orleans. So we kind of have that back and forth. So we are the New Orleans Writers Workshop, but we're, you know, we're all over the place, really. Some of our teachers have had fellowships all over the world, and they're representing us there. So, yeah, I think uh, I think we're open to it, and we have made strides in that direction. Um, we would like to see something where there is a writer's community, our communities, plural, in every one of the metro areas across the state. So Shreveport, Bozier, Monroe, West Monroe, Alexandria, Pineville, Lake Charles Sulphur, you know, going over to Lafayette area, then where I grew up in Baton Rouge, and then down to New Orleans. And if you covered the state that way along, you know, where the metro areas are, that would reach almost everybody uh, across the state, you know, in different zones of the state or different regions of the state. Well, and when you say writer's community, what do you mean? And also, have you looked to see if they have them already? Some of them do, but like right now, in fact, there's a, there's a, a an actual, y'all might even consider speaking with these people. There is a writer's um, community and speaker series in Alexandria. Mm. And they mm -hmm. have a, a, an organization. I mean, they are actually an organization. I don't know if they're incorporated, but I, I get their emails and we met a guy who is their secretary or president or something. He's some sort of an officer in the group. And he is, I haven't, we, Bruce and I have not scheduled him yet, but we spoke to, of all people, the Louisiana Historical Association, because we're, we're literary scholars. We do mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. So it's sort of, a lot of that sort of aligns with what y'all do. But anyway, we yeah. were invited to speak at the LHA back about a month and a half ago, I guess. And it, literally, as we were leaving, this guy came up and saw me looking at a table, and he had heard part of our talk. And he said, oh, well, I'm so-and-so, and I'm with the Senloff writers, whatever. The, I think they're called the Writers, Sunlight Writers Collective or something. But anyway, he introduced himself and he's doing a book on lynchings across the state of Louisiana. I say a mm -hmm. book, it's actually a series of books. And again, he's divided the state into zones and he's covering mm -hmm. all of the lynchings in each one of those zones. And I got to looking at their mailers and it's unreal. I mean, they brought, they brought in, Robert, was it Robert or Richard? Anyhow, Robert, I'm going to say Robert Olin Butler, just about a... Oh yeah, about Robert. Yeah, Robert. Yeah, the Pulitzer uh, winner. And they brought in various, they brought some journalists in that's uh, kind of a prominent journalist from central Louisiana. Uh, they mm -hmm. brought in some rather well-known people. And they do this, uh, I think they meet every week or every couple of weeks. It's pretty frequent. So I'm thinking, you know, and then Shreveport has a couple, by the way, a couple of writers' organizations. Not just one, but two. And one mm -hmm. of those writers' organizations is the oldest in the state. It dates to the Depression, to 1935. So, wow. Yeah, so if y'all could you know, again, kind of plan out, kind of like what Bruce and I are doing. I think you would have an audience to travel around the state. And as a 501c3, like we are now, you might be able to get grants for travel expenses. Uh, at the very least, to be able to do Zoom conferences and, of course, then, you know, schedule those as a as a service or whatever. But, of course, then, you know, bring in a little bit of money for the, for the not-for-profit as well. 
I was interested in how it is to collaborate over Zoom because, um, you know, all my career, it's been a couple of people huddled over a piece of paper and later a, a laptop. And now they can just throw it up on the screen. You can see what they see, um, uh, you know, in each other's way. I don't have to say, will you please brighten your screen? I can't see. <laughs> and also make the letters bigger, please. Um, I don't have to say that. I can do that for my end. So I bet Zoom, at the same time that it cramped your style, it probably gave you new ways of uh, connecting. I I like to teach over Zoom because I teach at 7 in the morning, and people who wouldn't otherwise be able to come to our classes are able to access them. And that's something I never would have learned if not for the pandemic. And uh, I've gotten used to it. I've figured workarounds for it. Also, I work virtually, so I'm, I've gotten more and more used with, to Zoom. Um, but it's been wonderful. People can, they don't have to get childcare. They don't um, have to drive across town in rush hour. They don't, they don't have to worry if they're working late. They just get right out of bed and come with their coffee and we do our work. And then it's done for the day. So I, I love teaching that class. Yeah. You get to know everybody's cat. <laughs> well, I will say that uh, we move very quickly. It's only an hour and a half, and we all have to go to work when it's over. So I don't, I don't allow cats. So <laughs> oh. we're on the writing right now, right? I, I watch. I, I follow these um, these uh, Zoom lectures every week. I get invited to those things through my Facebook feed, and they, and of course, it's part of the algorithm. But it, it, this is where you can kind of turn the algorithm to your advantage, and it will, mm-hmm. you know give you notifications about things you may be interested in that are related to what you already follow. And so just last week, uh, I was given an invitation for a guy and we went, we wound up bringing the man on the show actually, but this was last Friday. No, I guess it was about three weeks ago now. Anyway, it was a, it was a program about censorship and the first amendment. And I was given the notification literally only a couple of hours before the zoom conference started. And it was out of Ohio someplace. It was sponsored by the, I think by the library in Akron. Anyhow, it's one of the larger cities in Ohio, other than Cleveland or Cincinnati. And so I said, geez, this is pretty interesting, and maybe we could finagle the guy to come in on the show. And lo and behold, he was very fine with coming on the show. We got him on last Friday, you know, just, just a few days ago. So anyway, this happened, again, all within the space of a few hours. I mean, I found out about it about two hours before it started. I quickly sent them, you know, my registration information, and I walked in on the conference. And this was all strictly by chance that I happened to see that roll through my feed. And I'm thinking in the same vein with y'all, if you've got people that particularly in a, in a rural community where they don't have access to other writers, where you are mm-hmm. providing a really valuable service and a really valuable opportunity for community, they see this and they say, geez, I'd like to participate with these people, you know, with these, with these people who are leading the conference as well as with the other writers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and Zoom and, and really the technology gives them the opportunity that they wouldn't otherwise have to, to, to participate. Uh, like in a smaller town like Ruston, where we are, Ruston's not quite 24,000 people. And it is a college town, but we don't have a really robust writer's community here. We've got some tech faculty, I think some Grambling faculty that write. And I'm sure there are some students that write some. But there, mm-hmm. from, as far as I know, there's no formal writing community in the two cities. And yet you've got about 17,000 college students in this area. So you've got a, you know, a rather sizable number of college students in the area. But nothing, as far as I know, again, nothing formal as far as a writer's community goes. So you don't have to be a good. 
Oops, sorry. I was going to say is I, I think we have both kinds of uh, opportunities with New Orleans Writers Workshop to kind of circle back to something that you had said at the very beginning is this idea that that writing can feel very solitary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, um, you know, Stephen making a great point that, and, and Jessica too, for those who are in, um, you know, not in the middle of an urban area or are struggling to find that writing community, absolutely Zoom is offered up. Just tremendous, tremendous opportunity for interaction. I feel as though I, I'm probably a little different than Jessica on this front in that I, I really enjoy having people gathered around the table. So for me, part of what, what I love about teaching is bringing people who would normally be in a room or staring at a screen alone together and just the notion that there are others who do this and seeing them face to face and sharing their stories, knowing that you are not alone. Um, I love that. And I also believe that writing, even though it is considered mostly to be solitary, it does not need to be that way. Like you say, the tossing of ideas, but also sitting down in a space and knowing that other people hearing the click clack of the keys or the scribbling across the page, that is just a wonderful feeling. And as a, as a teacher, for instance, if I give a guided exercise and I watch people go to task creating things in real time in front of me and everybody has a story that is simultaneously going on in, in their head, but they're all different stories, wildly different. So coming from the same prom, it is one of the best feelings in the world seeing writers come together and create in the same space. I love it. Yeah, there is a, a composition Pedagogy class years ago, it was my first time to teach 101, and they had a grad thing. So she had us doing the assignment. So one was kind of a like a, a memory you wanted to write about. Somehow we had wound up with a real writer in the class, one of our MFA guys. Yes, it's raining, and he and his brother are standing under a tree, smoking cigarettes. It was just the best thing, you know. I'm like, how did he do that? It's just trees and rain and smoking. But the way he was putting it, it was very like a you know going back in time in a reverie or something. It was just amazing. Um, like you say, he got the same prompt I did. I don't know what mine was about. It wasn't good. I know that. Uh, but this guy, he knew what he was doing. And so, but it's a skill like any other. So there is the. The genius part, there's also the, the sweat part, you know, the uh, 90% perspiration part, just making yourself sit there and write. And well, it also sounds like he had studied craft. Yes, yes, he had. He's getting a master's of fine art in creative writing. Yeah, yeah. And they, they share that with the musician, so you write the writer. I mean, they, they have to practice their craft just like, you know, the composer, you know, the Beethoven, the Chopin, the, you know, the, whoever else, I mean, has to sit down at a keyboard or with a guitar or whatever their instrument is and sit down and start writing part of a score and see which melodies and harmonies work and which don't, frankly, and right, why they don't work. They don't sound particularly pleasing to the ear or they just, they just don't work, musically speaking. And so they have to fiddle with that. I mean, I know Bruce and I had friends when we were in college the dad was actually was a box scholar at tech and he was also he taught all the advanced uh, music classes like fugue and counterpoint all that and he would write a little bit himself but he was mostly a scholar and it, mm. it as Bruce said it's a lot of sweat expended by the by the composer uh and he was in his case he was a violinist and he and his wife both actually were were string players and you just have to sit there with that 
that that instrument or whatever again whatever it is even if you're a vocalist and sit there with that thing for hours and try to figure out what works yes those are the kind of classes i like to teach the best i i used to call it jumpstart your writing so how to keep going when you don't know what where to start or feel like you're not good or don't have anything to say that's of any you know nothing new under the sun kind of thing um now I call it writing before work or writing from the body. And the whole point of it is to figure out some kind of practice that works for you that makes you stay in the seat, right? Every day. You have tools, you have prompts, you have body movement if that's what you need. And every day you just got to keep your butt in the seat. That's the German say. You know, just it, stay with it. say, bottom to the chair. And mm-hmm. you have to keep the bottom to the chair. I don't think that there's a single writer alive who has never doubted themselves, become neurotic at some point, thought that they were, didn't have anything fresh to say, didn't have talent, Mm -hmm. and yet you have to, you press through that. Um, But it's, it's really, I believe, this combination of dedication. I think it is some talent, but it's really more about that commitment to the process and continue. It's a practice. And fortunately, it's one that can last your entire life. When I was writing my dissertation, um, I was using my office of uh, tech, and I would occasionally just kind of come to, like, I'd been in almost a blackout, and I'd wandered out, and just kind of looking at, across the way at other buildings out uh, from the end of the hall, and I didn't even get here, you know, and I made this, uh, you know, rubber band ball, and <laughs> uh, cooked all these, uh, 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 you know, Paper clips together. Somebody's been messing around in my office. Yeah, I, you know, I would think if you've got an actual physical class meeting in New Orleans and everybody's in New Orleans, it would be really interesting to tell everybody to go out and just describe what they're seeing or make a story about what they're seeing. Basically, what George Washington Cable did. It's like, okay, I'm on Royal Street. I'm looking around at these buildings. Ah, yes. And, this is going to be going on here. And, it's, you know, uh, it was a starting place for a lot of his stuff. Mm. We did teach yes, <laughs> in any number of ways, which we're talking mm-hmm. about there um, versus kind of how can we kick off something? How can we use perhaps setting our own environment um, and, and use that? We certainly have classes that have talked about the use of setting. I think we are so lucky to live in such a ripe and juicy setting uh, that can be used as a point of inspiration. But there are so many ways that you can enter into the material and use a kickoff point. For instance, I've taught a couple of classes on using tarot cards, the cards oh, yeah. that you draw oh. off of the tarot. I love to actually teach this, um, these wonderful archetypes and images and how you can pull out several cards, give an interpretation to the cards and use them as a point off for characters and developments and themes and settings. Um, that was a class that I taught this, this January at the Chloe Hotel, and that was very successful. But there's any number of ways that you can enter into the material. Right. And I mean, every place is a place. There's something interesting. There. I think that goes doubly for New Orleans. You've just got so much, you know, you've got the French border that everybody's familiar with. No, it's place to the place. It's definitely place so, squared. Yeah, so many um, neighborhoods in the city that have so much character and you know like um confederacy of dunces as this guy moves 
the come into Irish Channel to the French Quarter to other spots in the city. The city's a real character. It's not just a character because there's so many New Orleans. You know, you're in the French Quarter at State Time, all this stuff going. But I remember one night I was out taking pictures and I was walking down Royal Street and the bottom fell out. It was just pouring down and I found a balcony and stood under it uh, and took pictures for an hour while the rain fell. <laughs> but they're very different pictures than you get if you're just walking around the daytime. So, yeah, setting involves so many uh, things uh, besides just where you are. It's like, what's going on here? Well, I think writers... Yeah, yeah go, ahead. go ahead, Jessica. I was just going to say, inherent in us as writers and people who like to read, we're observers, right? right. So being having that awareness to look and and put the pieces of the the puzzle of what you're seeing together and really document it is but, inherent in the and that can happen anywhere, right? So much of those let's follow up on that. I mean, what about writers and observation and perception? You know, how, do you teach anything about perception? You know, how the writer perceives the world, or, and then in turn, how the readers who encounter the work are perceiving the world through the, you know, through the words of the writer. Do you ever go into that with your with your students? I, for me, mostly what I do is try to reinforce that they're, they have everything they need already. Everyone has their own way of seeing the world. It's just validating it together and having the tools to articulate it to another human being. Like, that, to me, that's what writing is. You're like trying to show someone what it's like to be you and how you see things, right? And that's really hard. I mean, think about long-term relationships or children, you know, parent-child relationships or even in a work environment. It's like, how can we understand one another? And back to the letters in the jail, right? <laughs> it's like, how can I tell someone what I'm seeing and how I'm feeling in a way that they can also feel it, right? Kind of radical empathy. I have an aunt who lives uh, out from Collins. She's been in that area her whole life. And she would always have these stories, and she would start it with, have I told you all this? And, uh, of course, she had, but we want to hear it again. Uh, she wrote up some of these for the newspaper, but a year or two back, one of my, uh, one of her granddaughters just sat down with her, recorded story after story and came out with not one, but two volumes of Have I Told You This? And this was just the stories she'd been telling, you know, collecting over 80 years of her life. And she's a great storyteller, you know? Um, and, um, yeah, everybody's got a story, right? Yeah, everybody does have a story, and um, I think that they struggle with how to tell it. Uh, it's not that people don't have stories, it's that they, they really mm -hmm. struggle, I think, with how to give shape to it. Right. And mm -hmm. we might think that that's instinctual, and for some people, some very lucky people, it may very well be. But most of us have to actually learn that craft. And um, I would just say is kind of back, uh, Steve, to your point about the reader and how the reader responds or an audience responds to story. Yeah. I definitely speak to this in when, when I teach. 
it's not that we can ever anticipate what everyone is going to or how everyone is going to universally respond. Of course, there's going to be differences, and we really want the reader to engage. We don't want to tell them everything. We want them to interpret. We want them to bring some effort to the page. That's when this beautiful dynamic exists between the work and the audience. But I would say that there are some tried-and-true principles Oh, yeah. tend to make for stories. And so, you know, uh, of why they, they tend to work, uh, tried and truth in terms of orienting a reader, in terms of making them invested, in terms of coming up with a conflict, in com- terms of making it clear what the stakes are to the mm-hmm. character, why it matters, in terms of building up an arc, in terms of flavoring it with enough detail that it feels fresh. And it, as though, even though the story and its themes might be universal, this particular story has never been told in quite this way. There are things that can absolutely be taught and that I think they are the things, these elements and these skills that ultimately help us in terms of getting that reader experience that we're after. Yeah, I right. think we could have like 20 great okay. stories of the guy smoking a cigarette under the tree, right? Well, well, the rest, right? Mm-hmm. I'm better at just verbally telling stories, but that comes from 30, 40 years of standing up in front of people every day and, uh, like you say, learning how a, uh, an audience is reacting. Um, and um, after a while, they teach you what's good and what's not. You kind of uh, just have to hone your skill. I don't think anybody, you know, necessarily starts out as a great storyteller. Um, they might. I could, yeah, maybe you've got the talent. But most of us going to get there, it's through like being able to read a room. There's a certain angle with storytelling. It's performative. Like, like being a singer, like being a pianist or a violinist or guitarist. I mean, it's, it's performative. Well, it's one of the things that we can offer through a class. And one of the reasons why it's so important to bring writers together is and share work. Right, because not only are you sharing your work and getting feedback on your work, but you're seeing how other readers and writers are responding to it. And trust me, you could really never know those reactions yeah. until you have, until you have, and it does take some, some bravery and courage to share your work. And then you're responding to other people's work. So we build that skill of having, you know, this ability to read the room or gauge how readers might respond. And the more that you do share your work and the more that you do hear other people's responses to work, the more you come to see that there are, in fact, often, right, these sorts of generalized responses, patterns of responses, things that readers are craving, things that they really respond to, things that tend to turn them off. And so I do think that we can come to understand quite a bit about human psychology by submitting our writing, reading writing, reading the work of others' writing, and engaging in a discussion about it. Right, yeah. I I also, when I taught in person, I usually had a reading on the last week of the session yeah. where we went to an art gallery or I have a big old bakery that I live in. People came over here and we had a party and people read their work. And that was a huge experience. I mean, Students still talk about it, and they storm. They they form groups where they do the same thing with one another all over town, because oh, yeah. it's so important to feel that connection and to hear your work and see where it lands. 
Highland Coffee off of LSU, kind of an extension of the classroom because that's where the MFAers would go to read their stuff out loud. We would, mm-hmm. those of us who were <laughs> trying to take classes and not trying to be creative, we would go and listen to them. And, oh, it's great. I would still remember some of those stories. Um, uh, mm-hmm. You know, one of them, a little girl was trying to save tadpoles that had grown in a culvert outside of her house. Or in a curb, and you know it's got water because it's New Orleans, but they're running out. So how do I save these things? For some reason I remember those tadpoles. <laughs> That's probably 40 years ago. Uh, but I was worried. I was worried. Are we going to save the tadpoles or not? So that's the suspense, right? <laughs> and it doesn't have to be something big. So have y'all written anything you would like to publicize and tell folks where they can get it? Uh, because we want you to sell your wares. Huh. Allison has something big coming, so I'll, I'll cool. let her go first. Uh, so I'm pleased to say that I will have a debut novel out next year. The title of that is Born Seed. The publisher is Turner Publishing. It's a mid-range or mid-sized press. Uh, and Born Seed is a historical literary novel. It's set in 1918 China, and it is based on real events, which is, or which are, the American botanical explorer, Frank Meyer. If you've ever heard of a Meyer lemon, Frank Meyer was the botanical explorer explorer who actually lived, and he did amazing, rigorous expeditions to China. In June of 1918, he, in fact, went missing from a ferry on the Yangtze River. And my book is the fictionalized investigation, but again, a lot of these facts are true, based on the search for the explorer, Frank Meyer. Did they ever find him? Or is that something no. we need to read? Yeah, I think you have to read the book. Uh, you got to read the book. I can't give you that. Read the book. <laughs> Spoilers. Okay, sorry. <laughs> Everyone always asks that, and it's so funny. I'm like, no, I'm just giving you what will, what will be on the back of the book jacket. <laughs> right? Yeah, I need to read it. Right? Read book, please. <laughs> um, and yeah, I'm finishing up a manuscript of poems. It's kind of a hybrid manuscript. It has some flash fiction and flash nonfiction in it as oh, well. Man. It's I like called Waves. Me too. Uh, I like the lyrical nature of it. Um, it's very in line with how I view the world and how I speak and write. And uh, it's called Ways to Die in Mississippi. I'm making final revisions now and hope that it'll be out later in the year. And this month I'm doing something kind of wild. I'm writing 30 poems in 30 days for Tupelo Press. And they're posting them on their website every day um, as a fundraiser for them and also as a way to build community among poets throughout the United States and light a fire under me to finish those last revisions as well. So I'm on day two, you know, or yeah, two. So pray for me. I got 28 more to go. I suggest haiku. <laughs> yeah, right, right. I do like to write haiku. But I did. Uh, we'll I, see. I actually did a little creative writing uh, that I put on our website. It was a haiku based on what I saw in Jackson Square, but then. To explain it, I had these like 500 words of uh, footnotes and then a 30 minute. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can't hide who you are, you know. It's an academic haiku. 
Yeah, I want to understand. Nobody will get this point. It was a little in French, a little in English. About Brock Toupee, this uh, slave who ran away, uh, was uh, Brock Toupee means cut arm. And they they cut his arm off, and then he ran away again. And eventually, they dismembered him and laid him out in Jackson Square and made all the slaves come walk past his dead body. The day or two after I learned about that, I'm walking through. Uh, Jackson Square in this mannequin with no head, arm, or uh, legs. Jeez, uh, some, some kind of connection yeah. there, right? So, uh, yeah. But if if it wasn't going to be, you know, just making sense to me, I had to explain. Oh, yeah, there you go. Uh, my 500-word footnote in a minute and a half. Uh, so uh, any last thoughts before we uh, uh, let you all go? Uh, Tell us one more time where people can find you guys. So I just want to mention we have tons of classes running this summer and into the fall. You can find us on neworleanswriters.org, and they're listed there under our classes and workshops. We also have a a page for manuscripts and consultations, um, so you can reach Allison or I through that to uh, work one-on-one. But I just, we're branching out a little this summer. We have this wonderful writer, Anya Groner, who is the head of the English part, or the literary arts department at NOCA. Don't um, Stephen? Yeah, we interviewed her quite a while back. Yeah. yeah. So she's a, a great friend and partner of ours, and she's going to be teaching for us at NOCA in July. She'll be teaching how to tell your own story, so very in line with what we we're talking about. And then we're we're really kind of, Doing something new in August, Lisa Passold, who is a terrific poet from Canada who um, splits her time between New Orleans and Paris, France. We're catching her in August, kind of in her in-between travels to teach a class on romance, the genre, and how to make it your own. Uh, She's got two new novels coming out this year that are romance novels, in addition to her award-winning poetry and literary fiction that she's published in the past. So very excited about that. Tiana Nobile is going to be talking about, uh, like Mobile, is going to be talking about um, memory and how to incorporate that in your work. And that's really central to her to her work and how she sees the world. And, um, yeah, we're just thrilled. We have so many great writers uh, joining us this summer. Be, and, be sure. Yeah. Be sure to tell your your future, your coming guest about the, uh, to go look up the name Daisy Bacon. Daisy Bacon was a pulp editor, pulp magazine editor back in the, at least back to the thirties, maybe earlier. She pioneered in what we now call popular romance. And she created the, the pulp magazine romance uh, book or publication. Cool. uh, Yeah. You know, did this kind of thing for many, many years. And at the tail end of the pulp magazines, she became the kind of stopgap or final editor on a magazine that probably all of you have heard of, but one was The Shadow, who was a character on radio, but he was originally, he was a oh, yeah. radio character that they modified to put in a pulp, you know, print a print, and eventually back to the radio. But she also edited another magazine called Doc Savage, who was a, mm-hmm. not the only, but, but a forerunner to Superman. So Daisy Bacon finished out her career, in the pulps at least, Doing those, doing those particular books as well. I don't know if she did. Yeah, she did Astounding Stories too, which survives today as the magazine called Analog. Oh yeah. Uh, so it's an old, you know, venerable kind of a, a magazine. But but Daisy Bacon's very very important in the development of popular romance fiction in the United States. Extremely important, in fact. 
I'll definitely touch base with Lisa Pesthold about that. She is a, a historian. That's her, a big part of her work. So I imagine she, she's familiar, but definitely going to touch base with her. Thank you for sharing yeah. that. Anna Taylor. Yeah, there's a, I think there's a new biography about Daisy Bacon, if I'm not mistaken, or a fairly new biography. So she's mm-hmm. that, you know, that important to have gotten. It's actually a book length treatment. It's not just an article or anything. Anna wow. Came, Anna came on four years ago to talk about NOCA, the, the school farm. The art school yeah. over there uh, near the Marini. On um, you did? We on your run space from them yeah, all the time. <laughs> Where a lot of our classes are in their facilities. Yeah, so there's Ann Gitzelson and there's Anya Groner. Anya Groner. Okay. Okay. Uh, okay. I don't know that person Stephen's talking about. <laughs> I also wanted to say um, this, that, that um, I wanted to clarify this before we took off, is that yeah. that some people might think that they need to already consider themselves as writers or have gone to writing school or taken formal education or published or been scribbling away in notebooks for years before they would take a class with us. I have um, met so many people who have wanted to write for years, and they have been intimidated by the idea of putting themselves out there or thought that they would have to somehow knew more before they came to us. Yeah. And that is just not true. And I wanted to say, if there's anyone listening to this who just has an inkling, you do not have to already self-identify as a writing writer maybe you just have an interest and want to do it i say don't wait don't be shy put yourself out there anybody can become a writer at any time and um mm-hmm. and, and we hope that you will join us and join um <laughs> that's very encouraging because i remember a class of mine bruce, bruce and our old seminary alums he went to new orleans seminary actually and i went to harvard divinity school up in in Cambridge, of course, and I remember Ellen's and not enough seminary. But go ahead, Stephen. Yeah, I remember taking a class with a guy. You probably both heard. I know Bruce has heard of WGBH, the big NPR uh, public uh, public broadcasting affiliate in Boston. Yeah. And my Mm -hmm. professor was was an Episcopal lay person uh, in his kind of day job or whatever, but or I should say his night job. But his day job was that he was a producer for WGBH, and I remembered having some ideas and I'd written and he liked my writing a lot. He, I ended up with a pretty good grade in his class, but Hubert, this guy, Hubert Jessup said to me, we were talking about ideas and kicking ideas around. This was a class on media actually. And his being a TV producer, he was the ideal you know person to be teaching this. And I remembered saying something about storytelling and I had some ideas and, and Hubert said, well, you should write them down. And I said, Oh, Hubert, I don't have a thing to say. I don't think that anybody wants to hear. So it's right in line with what you just said. And I was a 21-year-old kid at the time, maybe 22 at the most, and immediately he shot back. And he had done some writing himself and as well as some uh, some series production for WGBH, you know, some local uh, programming up there in Boston. And he immediately shot back to me, oh, Steve, you shouldn't say that. He said, everybody's got a story to tell. He said, you need to just sit down and start writing and see what happens. And this is a guy that had been a producer, you know, before all of us studied with him, he'd been a producer probably 20, 25 years. And he wasn't that old at the time. He's probably in his 50s. And he uh, but he was, up, you know, trying to, give, trying to give encouragement to a young writer was what he was doing, clearly. You can set up a, a blog in like an hour. They're free. Um, and you can send a link to anybody who wants to. And it may go viral. And there are places like Wattpad that people post their stuff and get feedback. So it, the... 
barriers to entry are not nearly what they were when I was coming up. You know, self-published, you had a mimeograph machine. <laughs> a stapler, you know, like, okay, there we go. But nowadays you can get stuff out there and it can look really good. Then you can get feedback. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right, guys. Thank you so much for coming. I really appreciate you taking the time. Oh, sure. And good luck with your uh, project going forward. We look forward to hearing great things from you guys. Thank you. You too. Thank you. Right. Great thank to you meet you both. Your ideas. Thank you. Well, thank Allison and Jessica for coming on our podcast and talking about their work. Well, also thank them for working with people to uh, get their stories out because um, we have such an interesting state uh, that, um, you know, the more people that are writing, the more perspectives we can have, you know, people knowing stuff that uh, we might not know elsewhere because, uh, you know, you just never uh, learn everything there is to know about Louisiana. So uh, I think they're doing a good work for them. Uh, you know, for the people that are learning to write, but also for, for uh, our state in general uh, to help with our state literature. Yeah, um, there are always stories to tell. So, I mean, you and I found that out at the first, the, within the first couple of years of this of this project, not just the podcast, but the bigger, you know, um, website, because we were worried, well, well, and really for the podcast, I guess, specifically, but we were worried we'd run out of guests, you remember? Right. <laughs> no, we're not going to run out of guests because people are always writing new stories or yeah. historians and various other people are always, you know, taking new approaches to literary works, too. Literary scholars are doing the same thing, so. Yeah, we've got one coming up. I just found out, you know, we haven't talked to him yet, but uh, he goes around and um, he, uh, that introduces people to uh, the old uh, slave quarters that they had at um, the local uh, um, plantations, and uh, they'll spend the night there and look, learn what it was like to just live uh, in in this kind of space. You know, like no running water, uh, no stove. You have to cook in the fireplace. Just very uh, you know primitive surroundings that we can read about, but don't really you know really understand until we have to live there, you know? And, um, well, it's, it's that, definitely, I, you know, I was sitting here thinking as you were reading their intros, I mean, that's a valuable service, but really a valuable kind of a skill, I guess, that they're teaching these people because, again, think about it, people that, that would like to write, be it an autobiography, be it a novel, you know, whatever their, their writing, you know, their medium might be, and they don't know where to turn. And so, right. you know, here you've got two people that do this for a living, <clears throat> and it kind of, kind of are giving them almost like an apprenticeship, if you will. Well, it, it's a tricky thing to, it's one thing to have an interesting life. It's another thing to make it interesting in a story. Like, uh, I remember back in 2005, they had just a bunch of biopics of these uh, great musicians, and uh, um, most of them were not, uh, you might watch them once, you definitely wouldn't need to watch them twice. And then along comes something like uh, Walk the Line with Johnny Cash. Um, man, just really, you know, uh, kind of transcends the genre. Uh, if you're a good enough writing, writer, you can kind of make anything interesting. And uh, you just have to know what parts to put in and what parts to leave out, which 
you know, hats off to those folks because I can't do it. <laughs> but they're, 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 you know, our, our, one of our colleagues now retired, uh, Anthony Trail, used to do that kind of thing, <clears throat> teaching that with the rhetoric classes to the graduate students. And, of course, she was head of freshman English for years. And she would talk about being selective in your details. You know, you have to be, it's, it is, you're kind of engaging in a form of self-censorship, but you have to, you know, you don't want to put everything that you're thinking about into a story because it may not fit naturally with the flow of the, of the narrative, quite frankly. It just may not fit. Yeah, you've got to learn what to cut. You know, they say, uh, I, I don't know that it's true, but uh, that um, Michelangelo had a big block of marble and he just looked at for a couple of years and then finally started at it. And at the end of it, he had the uh, statue of David uh, in a you know, how do we do that? Well, I chip away everything that doesn't look like David. <laughs> um, and, uh, well, that's, you know, uh, you have to be able to see it, you know, and what, what parts you put in and what parts you leave out. Yeah, exactly. It's an art. Exactly, yeah, because now you're saying to, to, to be, can, can you hear me? Yeah, move it a little bit. Uh, it, yeah, it this, phone is, this, this phone is struggling. But no, right. they, they, they wind up uh, being, it's, it's the difference from somebody being. Hmm. Okay, I think we got it going again. Uh, sorry, folks. Stephen, you were just saying it's, oh, yeah, yeah. it's the difference so, between. Yeah, it's, it's the difference between someone who's a skilled, uh, you know, I guess you'd say artist and a craftsperson or whatever, versus being a, a really talented artist. Basically, right. they have they have the, the the form of genius, you know. And I'll, I, you know, you know the, the famous quote from Oscar Wilde. What is it? That beauty is a is a form or a species of genius or something like that. I can't remember the exact quote, but I mean that you know these people have the sense of beauty, but it's in their bones, so to speak. And I'm sure you remember that old uh, movie uh, Amadeus about Mozart. Yeah, yeah, Salieri. Yeah, at the beginning, uh, Salieri is welcoming him to court. He's, he's composed this lovely little, uh, you know, thing that, that uh, you know, Mozart sits down and says, yes, but you can do this to it. And, you know, it's the difference between competence and genius, you know. Exactly. Salieri just knows that if he lived to be a thousand, he's never going to be able to do that. It's just crushing. You know? um, but on the other hand, I think, you know, Teaching people to appreciate art, like by having them read when they come along, or write when they come along, and making them go to band. Or, uh, most of us are not going to play at Carnegie Hall, uh, French horn at Carnegie Hall, but I do have an abiding uh, appreciation for uh, music because of all those classes. So I think there's a, a role for mediocrity. <laughs> Well, and even even for 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 the scholar, in the sense that the scholar yeah. hopefully opens people up to the art or the, to the literature or whatever, you know. Yeah, we seem to be the uh, the person that opened the door for them. Well, for the Louisiana Anthology Podcast, I'm Bruce McGee, and I'm Steve Payne. We certainly want to thank. Let me go back up my page here. We want to thank Allison and Jessica for joining us uh, for this particular chat. Uh, if you are in the New Orleans area, uh, anywhere in that area, or even the, the Mississippi Gulf Coast, and you are interested, you can reach them at their website that Bruce mentioned. It is here in the show. It's 
in the show. I do think they've done some Zoom uh, stuff as well. Uh, so even if you're not local, you might sign up for the classes if it's a Zoom class. Well, and we this is kind of an argument for something for you and I have talked about in the past that maybe hosting, if not a writer's workshop, and well, then host something an author's workshop where they come in and they, you know, they come in here to Ruston, and we do it even via Zoom, and we, you know, introduce people to these writers' works because again, yeah. to me, the more the more people, the more of these conferences. There you are. Okay. <laughs> are, are you start? Are you taping yet? Yeah, yeah, we're still taping. Uh, you're, okay. just, you're just saying the more of these conferences when we yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. The, more, the more of the conferences that we have, and the more people, the more of the writers that can put their work out there, the more people can get access to the work. Uh, but particularly, as I've said on the show too many times, to count because you and I've worked with younger people in teaching, you know, university college. Um, this could influence a younger person to become a writer, which is a hard life, quite frankly. Let's face it. You know, being a writer is not an easy is not an easy thing. Uh, but it could influence a younger person to to follow the writer's the writer's path if they are so inclined. Right, right. Well, for the Louisiana Anthology Podcast, I'm Bruce McGee. And I'm Steve Payne. Again, we want to thank our guests for, for joining us this week. We also want to thank all of you for listening in, and we hope that you'll join us for next week's edition of the Louisiana Anthology Podcast. Bye for now. <laughs>